Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine, making the workplace more welcoming for young people with disabilities. When you start thinking about what people can do as opposed to what label they have, all kinds of possibilities are out there. Plus a young woman who knows whose job she wants. I'd sit as close to the TV as I could and watch what the anchors did. A report from Brazil on why easy access to antibiotics could cause worldwide problems. And I'm watching right now, there's a woman who's buying a very powerful antibiotic without a prescription. How direct access to your x-ray or MRI might change things. The patient is going to potentially read this report. That does sometimes change the way you say things. And we'll talk about the despair and peace that comes with long-term chronic illness. It will be 14 years in May, living with what I call the flu without the fever. That's all coming up. Next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with a shift in expectations. We're talking about the prospects that many more young people with cognitive disabilities have now once they leave school, and it's good news. In past generations, if a teen or young adult with intellectual or developmental disabilities could go to school, there still weren't many meaningful opportunities for real work. But I spoke recently with John Dickerson. He's executive director of the Arc of Indiana. He says things are changing. A lot of folks don't realize what great opportunities there are because we have historically looked at folks coming out of school with a disability. Most don't have a diploma. They get a certificate of completion. And then they go out in the work world and it's just kind of a mystery to them. We are seeing now a dramatic change. Yes, we still have high unemployment, but we are seeing exciting things happen. Young man in Albuquerque, New Mexico, whose parents defied all odds, he happens to have Down syndrome, but he owns his own restaurant. His brother, who doesn't like people too much, is the cook. Tim is the maitre d' extraordinaire. So we are seeing a change in the landscape. We're seeing businesses like Walgreens hire folks, not because it's a good disability policy, but they're exceptional workers. And it's growing dramatically in what we're thinking about the future for individuals. So, John, what has really changed? Because, I mean, for many years, there were places where people would go, you know, with people with disabilities, and and, and those places are tending to go away, you know, one sort of type of job or one sort of, you know, manufacturing X product. But what you're talking about is just kind of an opening. So something must be, or a few things must be really kind of shifting. Well, at the ARC, we've been trying to expand people's thinking and opening the door to new ideas because nobody ever really starts off knowing exactly what they're going to do in life. And so we, when I started in this field 42 years ago, the idea was go to school. Of course, in the beginning, we couldn't go to school because our kids weren't allowed in school until 1975. So then the idea is once you get done with school, you maybe would go to a workshop, a building. That's where you went. That was where you graduated to. And today, some families still need something like that because mom's a single mom, needs somewhere to go 40 hours a week. But we have a whole range of programs through Voc Rehab and now a Medicaid waiver program that I hope if your listeners have a son or daughter leaving school, they need to know any child with a disability who's eligible leaving school, Indiana now is committed to them to have support in finding a job, creating options in the community that didn't exist 10 years ago. So it's changing dramatically. And the key thing for families is unlocking that ability to dream. Mm -hmm. When I started in this field, people would say, Barbara, you know, keep your dreams down. You know, your son won't be able to do this, won't be able to do that. And so you didn't expect much. Now we're wanting people to dream about what makes you happy? 
what would make you fulfilled in what you're doing? A young man named Cameron, I could introduce you in Fort Wayne, graduated from Fort Wayne Snyder High School with a full diploma. He wants to be a music therapist. He also happens to have Down syndrome. Now, he won't take a usual path to be a music therapist, but he now got a job as an intern at a great company up there called Sweetwater Sound, one of the biggest music and sound companies in the world. We've given them money for equipment for yes, medicine. Yes, great people. Yes. But he's pursuing a dream in music. And this idea that we need to think beyond a label into what is it you can do. Exact Target, great company right here, is exploring hiring people with autism to write code. Now, when you start thinking about what people can do as opposed to what label they have, all kinds of possibilities are out there. So for uh, I'm thinking of, as a parent, and you're giving me all these great examples. So how early should I be trying to figure out what a good fit for my child is? Well, we really want you to start as early as possible. And we want kids on a diploma track. Because if you want a job, first thing they say is, do you have a high school diploma? And so the idea is as early as possible, think about what that future is, just as you do for any other child along the way. And they may have various different labels, but what they have is also various gifts. And how do we unlock those gifts? We have schools that are doing more and more about helping kids experience jobs while they're still in high school and understanding that there's a whole wonderful world of work out there that can be fun and enriching. Are there fields that tend to hire more people than others? It's really all across the map, but okay. some are better. One of the reasons we're doing a unique project in this country where the ARC is building a 150-room courtyard by Marriott in Muncie, Indiana. It'll have the first training institute embedded in it where students will come from four to eight weeks, learn and live in the hotel, work in it, and come back with a work credential in the hospitality field because it's one of the fastest growing areas, one of the areas you can advance in, and it is a great hiring opportunity for people with disabilities. We have a fellow at the Weston, he's worked there 18 years, and that's an employee you want. So we're looking at industries or businesses that are welcoming, but at the same time we find retail, manufacturing, a wide variety of it. Cook Equipment down in Bloomington has hired a number of people with disabilities. They're making heart defibrillators and pieces for heart catheters. And so it's really, as we start getting to employers, getting them to think differently. And the good news is, as unemployment goes down, employers are looking for good employees. And once they get by that barrier, that, gee, that person with a disability, I don't know if I can deal with that, and they realize they're good workers, and are actually upping production in some manufacturing applications, all of a sudden they're saying, boy, bring us more of these folks. We're doing well. It's finding the right fit, finding the right folks that want to work in that, and it turns out to be magic when it happens. We want to help people get over some of those barriers. We have other companies like Lowe's down in southern Indiana or Walmart in their distribution center that said, look, we'll train them. We know what to do. We want good workers. Don't worry. Just bring them in. We'll be fine. Uh, one of our folks talked about when they were asked what kind of job they wanted. Nobody ever asked them that before. And so they took them out. Let's, let's go look what jobs are like. And where do you want to work? And you know what she said? I want to work with nice people. Okay, we can start with that. Yeah. Let's start with nice people. Most people want to work with Was nice people. Was it hard people. to find that place? <laughs> no. Um, she ended up, but you know what she went? She talked to some other classmates in high school. Where did they like working? And where were people good to you? I'm speaking with John Dickerson, Executive Director of the ARC of Indiana, and we're talking about expanding work opportunities for people with disabilities. And we're joined in the studio by Michelle Fisher, who's a really good example about what he's talking about. Michelle lives with cerebral palsy. She works for the Wabash Center in Lafayette, Indiana, and she's always wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I wanted to be an anchor when I was six years old. Uh, I was like, Mom, let's turn on the news. And so she turned on the news, and I'd sit clo as close to the TV as I could um, and watch what the anchors did and understanding that how to ask questions and draw people out. So that kind of just was, was it for me. Um, I had been trying to cope with my own disability 
Um, I have cerebral palsy, so um, I was trying to carve out my own career path. And like John said, it was a lot of rocky roads along the way. Um, and I didn't have a lot of confidence, but journalism was what gave me the confidence that, that when I became behind this mic, I was normal. So let's talk about the podcast. We do a lot of wonderful interviews. I actually did um, an interview with one of my, John and I do a lot of interviews together, but I did another interview with one of my mentors that actually uh, I got in contact with um, at our local TV station when I was 17. And I said, can you help me be an anchor? And he was the one who um, really took me and said, you know what, whatever you want to do, I will be behind you. And uh, he didn't care about the disability. And so neither did I. And we have become great friends now. He has a, a little boy with autism now. So he is spreading autism awareness around his uh, city of Carmel and around the state of Indiana. Well, you would have to tell his name because he sounds like he's quite the hero of yours. He is Paul Howell. He was an anchor back when, probably in the 90s or so. So it was so awesome to get to interview him uh, and kind of come full circle and say thank you to him. Okay, so how long is your are, are your podcasts? How often do you do them? We do them every week and they last, we've gotten them down to like 20 minutes now. So um, we do lots of lots of cool things and my team is always behind me and this is kind of what I just have never dreamed. I never dreamed that this could actually happen to me, but it is now. So it's a it's an awesome opportunity now. So can we find your podcast by going online? Yes, you can actually find them on arcind.org, and you can go under under the tab our programs, and then go down to a view from my window, and all the seventy or so episodes we've done so far are there. Well, we wish you the best, Michelle. I can Thank see where you'd be Barbara. very, very good. I can't Thank wait to you. listen to one of your podcasts. Thank you. And John Dickerson, thank you so much for being here as well. Well, Barbara, thank you, and we appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Michelle Fisher's podcast is called A View from My Window. We'll post a link to it at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your Sound Medicine stat is 1.6 billion. With TV commercials in primetime showing people clutching their abdomens and wincing, I feel confident and daring to speak the name of this week's issue, constipation. In a new study, Harvard researchers noted that in 2011, constipation sent people to the emergency room more than 700,000 times. The cost of these ER trips came to more than $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion. This is enough to purchase, and I actually did the math here, 70,000 tons of Metamucil. As the author noted, constipation is often thought of as not a serious disease, but it can become quite dire. In 2010, it was the cause of 132 deaths. Some medical conditions can cause constipation, but frequently it's due to other factors that have become increasingly common. Poor diet, lack of physical activity, and opioid medications. Relief on the collective scale may take a while. That was the number 1.6 billion, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, a story from the Amazon rainforest, which may be the next ground zero for antibiotic resistance. We'll explain. And the frustrations of dealing with a chronic illness when you don't look sick. Slowly, over the years, I've grown to accept that, like it or not, this is what happened to me in life. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. Some hopeful news this week when it comes to a less expensive treatment for hepatitis C. 
Researchers at the U.S. National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Disease say early lab tests on an over-the-counter hay fever drug indicate that it has the potential to treat the disease. Scientists say the antihistamine chlorcyclazine HCI complements existing hep C drugs and appears to block the virus from getting into cells. There are several new hep C drugs available with cure rates of more than 90 percent, but the pills are more than $1,000 each and they need to be taken daily for months. Chlorcyclazine HCI costs about $17 for 30 pills. The National Institutes of Health reported this week that the U.S. health worker being treated for Ebola has been upgraded from serious to fair condition. The patient was one of 17 staff members of the nonprofit Partners for Health that were evacuated from Sierra Leone a few weeks ago. Sixteen other workers are being monitored for Ebola but have not shown any signs of the infection. Ebola has infected 25,000 people in West Africa, resulting in more than 10,000 deaths. And a dog flu epidemic continues to affect the Chicago area, where it has already sickened thousands of dogs and killed a handful of others. The outbreak of canine influenza virus, or CIV, started last month. Veterinarians say it continues to spread, and they expect to identify more cases in neighboring states as well. Symptoms include coughing, lethargy, and lack of appetite. Veterinarians say there is a vaccine for CIV, but most dogs do not get it. So once they are exposed to the virus, they will come down with it. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. A story now from the Amazon rainforest, where lax drug laws are making the problem of antibiotic resistance even worse. Sound Medicine contributor Sam Shramsky reports from northern Brazil. These are the universal sounds of a hospital, a busy hospital. In Pefe, a city in the rural Amazon, these sounds are almost deafening because this is the only facility of its kind intended to serve a population of tens of thousands of people. In Drogaria Tefe, a pharmacy in the heart of the city, it's easy to get a hold of shampoo, chocolate bars, and yes, medicine. But who would have imagined that some of that medicine behind the counter, including antibiotics, might be as easy to acquire as the chocolate bars themselves? So we're here in the pharmacy, and, um, and I'm watching right now, and there's a woman right now who's buying um, a very powerful antibiotic um, without a prescription. She's just asked for it, and uh, the pharmacist is uh, complying. So I just asked for the same um, antibiotic that, uh, that the woman in front of me had purchased, and again, without need for, without need for a prescription. Um, and without any hesitation, he showed it to me, uh, told me the price, and um, didn't appear at all to be phased by the fact that I was asking for an extremely powerful antibiotic over the counter. The casual sale of prescription-based medication is common in many parts of the developing world. This can, in part, be chalked up to the paucity of trained pharmacists and sometimes lacks enforcement when even the pharmacist and customer both know a certain drug can't be self-medicated. In the city of Tefe, deep in the heart of Brazil's Amazonian region, all of these features are on display. In today's display. morning rounds, doctors have long warned about the growth of antibiotic-resistant germs. A new report from the CDC says we may face catastrophic consequences if we don't act to we control We now live the in a world where, despite the fact that deadly diseases often seem out of our control, today, think of know, Ebola. You should have no concerns about Ebola at all. None, I promise. Unless a medical professional has contacted you personally and told you of some sort of possible exposure, fear not. Or measles, Do even malaria. It may be with diseases that could have been addressed at an earlier stage, but weren't, which are wreaking the greatest havoc. Do not havoc. listen to the hysterical voices on the radio and the television or read the fear-provoking words. And it is in the Amazon, particularly the rural Amazon, in a region where the phenomenon of increased bacterial resistance, so-called gram-negative resistance, is surfacing. This, according to Dr. Ricardo Barbuti, 
a gastroenterologist and expert in the field of antibiotic resistance in Brazil, is the result of rampant self-medication. But it's also the result of the freewheeling way in which antibiotics are handed out, via prescription or otherwise. Uh, even in the hospitals, uh, the, uh, there is no control in, in the smaller hospitals uh, about it. So you can prescribe any kind of antibiotic anytime you want in the great majority of hospitals in, in Brazil. In the countryside of Amazonas state, whose massive boundaries encompass some of the largest tracts of Brazil's rainforests, human density isn't so much of an issue. But bacteria can travel in tightly packed Amazonian towns, or in far-flung but often equally compact riverine villages, there is every chance for microbes to move through the environment at high speeds. And one vector is the urinary tract. Dr. Camilo de Oliveira, an immunologist at the General Hospital in Tefe, explains. The most resistance in this region here, I come to you, is antibiotics, is infections urinary. It's gigantic. The worst form of antibacterial resistance here in the rural Amazon is urinary tract infection. It's huge here. It's not the only one, but it is the main worry. The biggest factor is the heat. It really favors this form of infection. And this is the case with women far, far more than with men. Then there's the urinary tract itself. It's thinner in women and more vulnerable. Then there's customs. Here's what happens. From a young age, little boys are used to being told, take off your clothes and pee where you are. Or as girls might be spanked for peeing on the side of the road. So they're raised to think it's not okay to pee in the open. There's a lack of public bathrooms, and we don't have basic sanitation. So women hold it in the whole day until they get home. Men, they just go to the nearest tree. Think back to earlier in the broadcast, where I was able to purchase a very strong antibiotic without a prescription. It's quite possible any woman with a urinary tract infection could do the same thing. Talisman, a 22-year-old who lives in an informal settlement in Tefe, is one such example. In her case, UTIs were a persistent problem that actually never went away. É, eu peguei uma infecção, eu já tinha antes, só que era controlada. Devido à gravidez, ela aumentou muito. E os remédios que o médico estava passando... I got an infection that I already had. But before, it was under control. Due to being pregnant, it got worse, and the medicine I was receiving wasn't making it any better. The medicine wasn't decreasing the symptoms. It was making them worse. I was interned in the hospital for four days being treated for this infection, but it didn't get any better. It got worse. As soon as I left the hospital, it got worse. I went to the hospital again, and I stayed there for another two days, trying to take care of the infection, and the medicine wasn't working. When I was examined at a clinic, another doctor gave me another medicine, another antibiotic, that right now is working. It's diminishing the infection. It's not completely cured, but compared to the way it was before, it's a lot better. By this time, you may be wondering about the doctors themselves. Why would an average person feel it necessary to self-medicate to begin with? In part, it's because of the ease of access to these medicines, both in clinics and in hospitals, as well as the ease with which they are handed out for a variety of conditions patients chronically mention. Overworked physicians, who in the rural Amazon can see more than 300 patients a day, with health concerns ranging from the common cold, to postpartum depression, to Chagas disease, are also a factor. So too is the fact that many physicians aren't qualified to carry out their workloads, and thus they use antibiotics as cure-alls. Dr. Barbuti elaborates this point. I think the, the antibiotic resistance here is increasing a lot in the last few years. Um, uh, in Brazil, I think the, this risk is increasing uh, more and more because we still don't have a very good control about antibiotic prescription. Um, this control is, is good in, in big cities like Sao Paulo, but I can tell in the countryside, uh, we don't have any, any control about doctors' prescriptions of uh, antibiotics, and I can tell you any kind of antibiotics here. So uh, that's one reason why the antibiotic resistance is increasing a lot, in my opinion. There's no single culprit for increased antibiotic resistance in the Amazon. 
it's easy to think that rural, loosely populated parts of the world are the best protected against antibiotic-resistant diseases. It's precisely because the wild north of Brazil, not unlike the wild west of American yore, is so expansive and disconnected that this public health problem is both alarming and perhaps was alarmingly preventable. Sam Shramsky is a freelance radio producer and postdoctoral researcher in environmental science based in the Brazilian Amazon. Currently, he is a visiting scholar at the University of Colorado Boulder. There is a new non-drug strategy for dealing with trauma that's getting a lot of attention these days. The American Psychiatric Association and the Department of Defense have both come out in favor of EMDR therapy as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It was first developed by American psychologist Francine Shapiro in the late 80s. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has been studying EMDR, among other treatments for trauma, and he told me that he has seen remarkable results. Uh, so EMDR is indeed a very all treatment. Uh, you recall what you saw, felt, thought back then, but you don't talk about it. Because the moment you start talking about it, you tend to go back there and become overwhelmed by the same experience. So you, you sort of observe inside of yourself what happened back then. And then you follow, you move your eyes from side to side, you follow movements. And that seems to activate a certain loop in the brain from the uh, frontal eye fields, the frontal lobes into the thalamus that sets up 40 megahertz thalamocortical rhythms that helps to integrate the memory. And so that at the end of this treatment, if it's a relatively circumscribed bad memory, people in 80% of the cases say, yeah, there's a very bad thing that happened to me, but it happened a long time ago. And today, I'm okay now. And I say, so EMDR helps people to put memories in the past where it belongs and puts it in perspective. And what for me was so fascinating about EMDR is what a bizarre treatment fundamentally it is. And then maybe it got an NIMH grant to study how effective it was and finding out how effective it was. And what for me was so interesting is that something that is so against our, what we usually do, like giving people drugs or talking about it, uh, that was so effective. And I thought, but that's fascinating. Uh, that uh, There's ways of getting into the minds that are different from our ordinary preconceptions. And then when people started to talk about yoga and my various people I knew said they benefited a great deal from yoga. I said, let's study that. And then yoga turned out to be effective. And then uh, some colleagues of mine, I don't do this myself, uh, they're tapping acupressure points and come up with extremely good results. So uh, what this field has opened up for me is that there is ways of healing that are not sort of mainstream uh, things that people immediately think about. And so I'm very interested in exploring how people in various cultures deal with the terrible tragedies that have befallen them. And when you go to other countries, you find that maybe like in Japan, they may have developed martial arts to help people to deal with trauma. And maybe in Africa, people have developed uh, rhythms, movement, and dancing to deal with trauma. And so for me, it's so interesting that trauma is so universal, has happened to mankind throughout history, and that different cultures have come up with radically different solutions on how to deal with it. What were the roots of the EMDR? I mean, how did that even come about as a way to try? Francine Shapiro said, everybody finds it an old story, that she was upset about something and she was walking through a park. But it's a, it's a, it's a weird story that she just started to move her eyes and said, hey, her memory went away. And everybody was, who heard it said, that's crazy, that's bizarre. And everybody dismissed it until more and more people said, this is really helpful. And so I and other people started to study it in a scientific way and said, hey, this really works. And so what's so interesting to me is that things that are different, like when you, when you say, oh, you give Prozac, and I'll say, yep, Prozac can be helpful. You don't ask me, well, 
how does project work, what does the project do to brain, because giving people a drug is culturally totally acceptable. But when you go to China, you see people do Qigong movements, you go like, that's bizarre, because that's what, not what we do in New York, you know. And then you see that Qigong is probably a very effective treatment for PTSD. I have taken Qigong, so I have to say I see the benefit. But EMDR, when you're when you're doing it, is that something that you do at once and it lessens the symptoms, or is that is it kind of a practice, like I think of when you're talking about no. yoga? No, no, it, no. You, it is a procedure where, in our research, in about eight sessions, if you have a single incident, like a, a rape or an assault or an accident. In about eight sessions, the symptoms sort of disappear. And so it's very structured and very precise. And usually people are pretty asymptomatic with the answer treatment. Well, you founded an organization called the Trauma Center and provides different services to people who have gone through this trauma. And you talked about a lot of the different ways to reach out to these people and improve their life. But I was wondering what your definition of a successful treatment is. I mean, what's the mindset of the people who are managing their lives in a healthy manner after trauma? Oh, a successful treatment results in people saying, I'm alive, I'm looking forward to my work this morning, I'm looking forward to go out this evening, I'm looking forward to make love to my honey, I look forward to take care of my kids, I'm, I'm here. I, I, uh, the definition of cure is to be fully alive for the present. And the definition of being a traumatized person is that you're stuck somewhere in the past. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is the director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts, and he's author of the recent book, The Body Keeps the Score. You're listening to Sound Medicine. And anytime there is research that involves voodoo dolls and blood glucose monitors, well, that's where you'll find our intrepid Jill Dittmeyer. Here she is with this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. Have you seen the commercial for Snickers Candy Bar, where Godzilla the monster happily plays ping pong and water skis with humans until his stomach starts to growl? Godzilla's actually pretty cool, except when he's hungry. (laughs) 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 Professor Brad Bushman would say Godzilla is hangry. There's a term hangry. It comes from the, the two words hungry and angry, and it indicates that Um, Hungry people are often very cranky, they're irritable, and they tend to become uh, angry and and have aggressive impulses. Bushman is a communications and psychology professor at The Ohio State University who studies emotions like anger and the area of the brain that triggers those impulses. That part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, needs energy to exercise control over emotions, and it gets that energy from glucose which is obtained from the food we eat. So he studied married couples to see if there was a link between low blood sugar and increased anger between spouses. Well, unfortunately, people are often most aggressive against the people they love the most. and It seemed like an important uh, group of people to study. To do so, he used a blood glucose meter and a voodoo doll. Yes, voodoo dolls. Of course, we could ask them how angry they are with their spouse, but this provides a quantitative measure, so they get a voodoo doll and 51 pins, and they can put between 0 and 51 pins in the doll, depending on how angry they are with their spouse at the end of the day. He tested blood sugars in the morning before breakfast and at night after voodoo doll time. Because we didn't want them to be cranky after sticking their finger and drawing blood. Some never used the pins. Others used all 51. And one spouse stabbed the voodoo doll 51 times for several days in a row. Well, they're pretty pissed off at their spouse, I would say. And the reason why? Low blood sugar. Participants in the lower 25% of glucose stabbed the doll with over twice as many pins as those in the upper 25%. Proving his hunch about hangry. Love is the answer, and you're more likely to be loving towards your spouse if uh, you have a full stomach. I'm Jill Dittmeyer. Sorry. Still be two days till we say we're sorry.
You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Here's an example of one more baby step forward in bridging the gap between doctors and patients. A group of radiologists from some of the nation's most prestigious medical centers are pushing what should not really be a radical idea, that radiology reports should be written in clear, understandable language that not just doctors can understand, but patients as well. And that would mean that the next time you get an X-ray or CT scan or MRI as a patient, you could see the report yourself. I asked radiologist Rourke Stay what that might mean. As we're going more and more into the electronic age and as patients more and more are sort of savvier and have more access to reports, in fact, part of the healthcare legislation is basically saying that clinics and hospitals need to offer a patient portal so that the patient can log on and see their results, their lab results, their x-ray results, their results of, of what happened when they were in the hospital. And as more and more patients have access to that, more and more patients are seeing their radiology report. This is actually a good thing for radiologists. Patients understand now that radiologists are playing this critical role But it opens up this problem because the reports are very difficult for a patient to read. And so I think part of that letter that you're talking about is talking about keeping that in mind. It doesn't necessarily have to be written for the patient because there's certain things. I mean, you have to convey the medical diagnosis and the importance medically. And so it really does have to have medical language. But you sort of have to keep in the back of your mind that a patient is going to potentially read this report. And so that does sometimes change the way you say things. I myself have had several family and friends ask me questions about imaging. I bet you do. (laughs) And so it's starting at the beginning. The patient goes to their doctor. They have a problem. Say they have back pain. The doctor orders the lumbar spine MRI. The radiologist reads it issues a report, but then it's the ordering doctor that actually discusses the results with the patient. And that is problematic at times because really it's the radiologist that understands the images the best and is the person best equipped to actually explain the results to the patient. You currently operate a consulting business where you give people second opinions on their image results. What, what kind of issues do they call you about? And I'm not talking about all your relatives who are <laughs> wanting you to read their scans. My company, basically, it has, uh, with new sort of cloud-based technology, it's now possible for patients, if they get, say, a CD of their exam, to upload it directly so that, you know, within seconds, I could be somewhere in a different state or wherever, and I could see the images. And then I can actually look at the images and have an online consult where we can see each other face-to-face via a webcam, and then I can scroll through the images and actually literally show the patient their imaging findings. This is very powerful for the patient because not only do they get this peace of mind that their study's been read very well, and it also allows the patient to understand what's going on in their body. And that can be key to actually getting better. A lot of times knowing what's wrong is, you know, half the battle and sort of understanding why you're having pain or why a certain thing in your body is cancer or is not well, the, the the criticism has always been that we're just scan happy. You know, I mean, just any time you come into your primary care physician, there's going to be some sort of x-ray or MRI or, or scan done to you. I, I guess maybe you're the one to kind of defend that, you know, because you're also doing second opinions on, on those scans. I mean, are scans overordered? As imaging has gotten better and as the electronic age has allowed for quick digital transfer of images, and there's been more pressure upon doctors to see more patients and to get people through the ER faster. 
there certainly has been an increase in imaging, and whether or not it leads to better patient outcomes is debatable. It certainly is a quick way to find out what's wrong with a patient. As radiologists, on one side of the coin, our livelihood depends on imaging, so we're obviously interested in imaging and want to have imaging become as pervasive as it is. Uh, But the other side, we want to image responsibly, and patients sometimes will go into the ER and they'll be triaged by a nurse who will order a CT scan before they've even been seen by a doctor or before they've been seen by any kind of healthcare provider. They'll just sort of, he's got abdominal pain, he needs a CT. Sometimes we'll read the CT and it'll show complex findings and we'll call the ER doctor and sometimes the ER doctor will not have seen the patient yet. And that's irresponsible imaging because you just can't shotgun approach, order a CT before you've seen the patient. But it's just amazing what we can see now on brain MRIs, the level of detail we can see with all these CT scans of all these bodies. We can map out all the arteries of the body. We can see very subtle detail within different organs. I mean, I think the take-home message is still that imaging is very powerful and it's very important. And as radiologists, we are in some ways gatekeepers towards that imaging because we do try to limit imaging when it's irresponsible. And so there's sort of a lot of things that radiologists are juggling at once. But it's fair to say that imaging is more pervasive than it used to be Whether that is good or bad, it's probably still net good, but it really needs to be done responsibly. Dr. Rourke Stay is a radiologist in Columbus, Georgia, who founded a consulting business offering second opinions on medical imaging. He's also a regular blogger at KevinMD. We'll post a recent example of his work at soundmedicine.org. So you're going about your life. In our next guest case, that means you're a law professor, and suddenly, wham, you're hit with an illness that capsizes just about everything, and it's not something that can be cured with a course of medication or even surgery. You just have to learn to live with it. When that happened to Tony Bernhard, she decided to share her stories of chronic illness so that others would understand her situation and how incredibly frustrating it is to be ill without looking ill. She published two books on the subject and will publish a third one later this year. Tony Bernhard, welcome to Sound Medicine. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, let's touch on the on the nature of your illness and what your life was like when it struck. Before I got ill, I was a law professor at UC Davis's law school. I'd also served as the dean of students there for five years. And My husband and I, in May of 2001, took a three-week trip to Paris. I'd rented a small apartment. And the second day there, I got sick with what appeared to be an acute viral infection. And I never recovered from it. And so I've been now, it will be 14 years in May, Uh, living with what I call the flu without the fever. I don't have a fever, and I don't have all of the acute symptoms that I had in the first month or two of the illness. But I have the aches and the pains and the dizziness and the malaise feeling and the need to lie down often uh, that one has when battling the flu. Is there a a specific name for this syndrome? Well, I've been given a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome because my symptoms come closest to the CDC's case definition, but there are a couple things. One is no one really knows what chronic fatigue syndrome is. It's probably four or five different illnesses and conditions that have yet to be isolated. Secondly, I don't quite fit the case definition. I have some symptoms that aren't in the definition, and some of the symptoms that are, I don't have. Their best guess is that my immune system was uh, compromised in some way by this virus and is in a chronic state of overactivity. 
so it reads me as sick, even though I probably don't have an active virus in my body. We're not totally sure. All your wonderful blog posts in your writing um, grabbed our attention. Um, and so let's talk about the place that grief has in your life. You've written about that. Do you still grieve over losing your health and, and your career? Well, I do. Um, but not to the extent I did at the beginning. Um, when I first, uh, you know, I spent the first year, couple years in denial that this was happening because you know, who gets sick and doesn't get better? Um, with what appears, you know, when you get sick with something like a viral infection. And I even, after taking a semester off, forced myself to go back to teaching part-time even though I was too sick to be doing it. I'd go from the bed to the classroom and back to the bed. And when I finally stopped working, the grief was so overwhelming that I, I really, I think I would call it more despair than grief because I'd lost my identity. You know, I thought of myself as Tony Bernhardt, law professor, and wow, if I couldn't do that anymore, who was I? What was, what was my life going to be about? And so I went through a period of grief over loss of my career and loss of an identity that meant so much to me and loss of uh, being out in the world in the company of other people so much of the time. I used to stand in front of a classroom of sometimes a hundred people. And slowly over the years, I've grown to accept that, like it or not, this is what happened to me in life. And if I continue to fight it, I only make a difficult situation worse. Now, that's not to say that I don't keep looking for answers and treatments, I do. I'm always trying new things. But at the same time that I'm doing that, I've also learned that the only way to live a life of purpose and, and find some happiness is to start where I am and say, okay, I don't feel good. I'm virtually housebound. This is how it is. Now what can I do? That said, I still have moments when that grief returns. Mm -hmm. And what kind of events or situations make you feel it now? Because you seem set so settled in. Mm -hmm. It can be triggered by any number of things. It can be triggered by someone from the law school contacting me and telling me about something that's going on there. It's often triggered by interactions with other people my husband and I love to go to Hawaii, and a fr uh, someone may say, oh, we're taking off and going to Maui for a couple weeks. That can trigger the grief. Mm -hmm. It's just that now I'm able to say to, to myself, ah, that's just some grief. There it is. Don't fight it. Don't get angry about it. Just let it be there, and it will pass. My go-to practice when I'm feeling blue or down or frustrated, and I still get that way. I wish I were well, quite frankly. My go-to practice is self-compassion because one of the big difficulties that people who are chronically ill face is they often blame themselves. They feel as if it's some defect in their character or something they did wrong, and there's a lot of self-blame. And so I spend a lot of time in my correspondence with people trying to help them stop blaming themselves for something that's not their fault. And one of the ways to do this is to cultivate compassion, which is nothing more than being kind to yourself. And sometimes I even speak softly or silently to myself words like, 
it's really hard to feel sick all the time. It's really hard. Well, imagine how you'd feel if one of your friends or family members came in your room and said that to you. It must be really, you. it would feel so good. You would feel listened to, and it would be so soothing and helpful. So why not speak that way to yourself? Well, Tony, we are out of time, but I'm not out of questions. So what's this third book that's coming out so we can look oh, forward well, to it? My third book is called A Mindful Path Through Chronic Pain and Illness, and it's a more comprehensive, it's not as Buddhist-focused. It's more focused on all of the the scope of difficulties that can arise and how to best cope with them and find a measure of peace from invisibility to being young and ill. Uh, So it's a book that's broader in scope than my others. And uh, I think when that book is published in the fall, I will have pretty much said everything I have to say. (laughs) It's uh, really a summary of everything I've learned, not just from my own observation, but from other people in the last 14 years. Well, Tony Bernhard, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Tony Bernhard is the author of two books, with a third one coming in the fall. We'll post links to some of her blog posts on our website. You can find them by going to soundmedicine.org. And that's it for this week's program. Sound Medicine's senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News, with help from Andrea Moraskin. And I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.